Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Plays The Thing. In uh, this next uh, series, we are going to be discussing Shakespeare, William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. I'm Matthew Bianco, and I am here with Brian Phillips. Hello. And Heidi White. Hey, guys. Save the best for last. Oh. <laughs> I immediately thought, wait, I should have done ladies first. No. I'll <laughs> there you go. You last. saved well, that. Great. That was yeah. perfect. Saved. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're here to discuss for the next several weeks the play Julius Caesar. And the question that um, immediately comes to mind for me is why of the Shakespeare plays, is this a play that everybody, almost everybody is always assigned to read wherever it is, right? I mean, the, the, the uh, Circe apprenticeship, this is one of the plays we read. In high school, most high schools, this is one of the plays you read. Why is Julius Caesar such one of those plays that has to be read? It's a really good question. I think part of the appeal of Julius Caesar is that it's relatively straightforward in its language. You can read Julius Caesar as a high school freshman and get a sense of Shakespearean language. It's a little bit of getting your toes in the water. It's fairly easy to read. And also because the plot line's pretty straightforward. It doesn't have those complex plots that the uh, that the high comedies have, nor is it this the intensity that requires so much, well, not requires, that's debatable, that sometimes feels like it requires so much specialized knowledge of tragedy. Um, so, and it is a... Uh, a historical play. And I think that's appealing and it's politically relevant in every era. Um, and the rhetoric is so fun to teach the idea of persuasion and, um, especially in act two, which we'll get to next week, um, with Caesar's death scene and the resulting speeches that come from it, that's very often focused on in the classroom. So I think for those reasons, it's a good starter play for people who are not as familiar with Shakespeare. 
Um, I don't know, Brian, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I, I agree. I think that it's a, it's a perfect play for combining the study of history and Shakespeare. It's not, it's not as complex in reading and interpretation, but as far as wrestling with the bigger questions, I think it's just as, just as complex and interesting and fun to wrestle with, you know, as any other Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. True. I, li- I like the comment that it's politically relevant, relevant to every era, because apparently every era contemplates assassinating its leaders. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of an era that hasn't, but maybe that's in our bright progressive future that we're going towards. Mm. Yes, <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> it's it's in our future, and over two thousand years behind us as well. Some things never change. <laughs> yeah, true. that's true. Um, I do think the question of how far is too far and what do you do to pr- to um, protect against the perceived loss of freedom or liberty is a question that, that people wrestle with throughout yeah. all ages. Yeah. So maybe not assassination in particular, but... But action of some sort. Yeah. The Declaration of Independence is a, a way of dealing with that without assassinating the ruler. It is. Right. Yes. Except his minions. You kill a bunch of his minions, but (laughs) not the ruler himself. Right. Well, I guess if Thomas Jefferson had lived in ancient Rome, which seems to have been something he really wanted to do, then maybe none of this would have happened. But alas, he did not. He did not. Right. (laughs) Um, They probably wouldn't have been as classically educated either. Just going by his. That's actually really true. All right, don't want to derail on that, but you're so right. He would have had about the same New Testament, though. Yeah, yeah, also true. (laughs) Wonder how many people are scratching their heads like, wait, what? (laughs) Oh well, see, we're already starting to follow the rabbit trails. (laughs) You can't help it; they're just they're there everywhere. (laughs) Um. So one of the things that that I think about Julius Caesar being read. I, I, I think you guys are right that, um, that, it, you know, that it raises these big questions, these good questions, and that it's, you know, it's relatively um, simple um, for lack of a better term, I guess, but it's, it's, it lacks some of the complexity that some of the other plays might have. Um, it's pretty straightforward. I agree with all of that. I think that's, that's perfectly true. Um, but yeah, it's not, I don't think of it, as being preachy like hmm. in the asking of the questions, it's not being preachy about the answers to the questions. It's not moralizing for us. Right. So it's, um, it's allowing us to ask the questions and then wrestle with them in the context of the play. But then they also become part of our way of, uh, I mean, they become part of who we are. So then they become questions that we wrestle with in light of the circumstances of our own era, our own lives, our own situations. And, and I think, I think perhaps whether whether uh, by accident or intentionally, educators know that these are the kinds of questions we need to have in our storehouse um, to wrestle with uh, as we be, as we become adults or leaders. So mm-hmm. it, it just it must be part of the curriculum wherever you go. For that reason, I think. Right, I agree with that. I think one of the uh, another kind of side reason I've heard mentioned before is that 
and I, I just think this is funny. Like I'm not bringing this up as some kind of moral reason why people should read Julius Caesar, but I think this is hilarious that <laughs> when they were developing curriculum, that they put this play in there a lot because there's no, there's nothing sexy in it. So they didn't think it would be a temptation to young people. So huh. I think that's funny. There's it, no, you know, it adultery has the word or sex in it though. I well, hmm. it's, does it? I didn't uh, know that. Thank you. Portia says it. <laughs> Actually, I, she's referring to her biological gender, sex, but yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've I've never heard that as a reason, mm-hmm. as a justification yeah. for it, huh? Who I don't knew? know. Is that scene where she shows her thigh. Yeah, I mean that's right. okay. But, so compa- that but compared to other <laughs> compared yeah. to other plays, though, right? Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, it's uh, it's one of the most perverse plays, of course, is what Taming of the Shrew. So, right, relative it's to no that, Taming yeah. of the Shrew. That's say no sure, Taming yeah. of the Shrew. Right, <laughs> um, Matt. To your point, though, about this this play exposing really good questions, big questions, without being preachy, I think that's an excellent point. But um, I think that would show through even more if we were as aware of the historical background and setting as some of Shakespeare's audience would have been, I think. Hmm. Um, So the historical background, I think is very important when you come to this play, not just in what it brings up, but in almost what's assumed Hmm. the audience would know. Hmm. Um, So those will be some things as, as a history teacher that, frustrating uh, yes. that I'll be bringing up throughout these podcasts. Just fair warning. Brian, well, I think, I think that's such a good point, Brian, because in with the, the conglomeration of the three of us, like I, I teach literature, Matt's more of a classicist and he has a very philosophical mind and you bring that historical knowledge to it. So it's going to be fun having the discussion between the three of us about this play. So what do you think... I mean, the play opens in Act One uh, with as players a, want to do, right? Yep, that's right. <laughs> Act One, Scene One. That's how it goes. So <laughs> predictable, Shakespeare. So predictable. <laughs> Try something um, new already, right? Um, so it it opens up with a bit of staging with mm-hmm. this conversation. Um, who are the two characters? Mar- is it Marcellus? That it opens up with Marlis and Flavius. Yeah. Yes. 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 Okay. So just look on page one, Heidi. Well, Act one. one, I know. I was looking at Act three in the storm. So now I'm going back. I'm sorry, scene three in the storm. But now I'm going back. All right. So Flavius, and then he. They're walking through. They're discussing the triumph of Caesar, which is about to take place, and they do give us a bit of. Um, a setting, right? Act one, scene one in Shakespeare is often orients the audience to the action that is about to take place. And that is what's happening here. So what would an Elizabethan audience have been able to tell from this scene that might be lost on a modern reader? Well, I think the most important thing is his questions about, um, let's say, around line 40, Okay. where he's discussing um, Pompey mm. and how um, the triumph of Caesar comes through the blood of Pompey. Now, he was he was one of the Roman consuls at the time, 
and um, he was an opponent of Caesar's. And so when Caesar comes back at this point, it's with Pompey dead. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now Caesar's the only one to actually claim power in Rome. They always had multiple consuls. um, And now with Pompey dead, Caesar's really the only one. Um, He's coming with his army into Rome, which was a violation of Roman law. Uh, It was technically an act of treason. And so while people are welcoming Caesar back as victorious, as a hero of Rome, for different reasons, um, they seem to be forgetting, at least according to to Marlis, that Caesar's triumph came through the blood of Pompey. Now, what makes this complicated is that um, from all we can tell, Caesar didn't actually kill Pompey. Hmm. Pompey tried to kill him and tried to have him brought up on charges of treason. They were trumped up charges, which is, um, which leads to that famous scene of Caesar crossing the Rubicon to enter Tom. Rome with his army. Right. Um, which again was technically an act of treason, but his army refused to leave him because they knew if Caesar comes in with no protection, then Pompey's going to kill him. Hmm. So, Caesar is, you know, I either enter Roman territory alone and die at the hands of Pompey, most likely, or I enter with my army, survive, but I've committed treason, which Mm -hmm. leads to that, you know, famous line, the die is cast, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And sure enough, he enters and has has a small skirmish with um, Pompey's army, Pompey's men. Pompey flees to Egypt and there Cleopatra and her brother, I believe, if memory serves, knowing that Caesar is pursuing them, they cut off Pompey's head and present it to Caesar in a basket as a gift. Hmm. And Caesar weeps when he receives this quote unquote gift. So already, and I I bring that up and I'll stop there. There's a lot of other stuff that could be mentioned and that I'll mention later, but Already there, you have a good example of the kind of tension that continues throughout this whole play is that you have the assumption by some that Caesar is a hero, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's the protector of Rome. And then you have the assumption by others that Caesar is a danger to Rome and he's going to be a tyrant. Now, Mm -hmm. in that one example you could look at Caesar crossing the Rubicon as an action of a tyrant, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or you could look at it as a wise decision of a man who has faithfully protected Rome, is trustworthy, and was just trying to protect himself. Mm-hmm. With the death of Pompey, you could do the same thing. If you see Caesar as a tyrant, then he was pursuing his political enemy all the way into Egypt and was going to murder him. Or you can see it as... No, he wept when he saw that Pompey was dead and perhaps was going to try to make amends. You know, we don't know. That was according to Caesar, right? So your assumptions play into everything in this play, Mm -hmm. preconceived ideas. And there's just one historical situation after another that uh, is really throughout the life of Caesar and the life of Rome that play into whether you see Caesar as a potential tyrant or the hero of Rome. That's, right. 
that's very interesting to me because I, I mean, I've always not, I didn't know all that history. I mean, I, some of it, but much more vaguely than how you've described it, described it here. But I've always read the play as it being, as it having those kind of assumptions involved, right? Yeah. Like you can read it where Caesar is, must be put down. And then you can read it where, you know, Cassius is overplaying, you know, overselling it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize, and, and I actually, I'm pretty sure I, I've been told by people that history is, is much more cut and dry that in his, the, the historical record is that Brutus did the right thing, hmm. but it sounds like you're describing it much more, um, but that even there, there are, there are different, uh, circumstances that might yeah. cause somebody to interpret it well, one way or the other. Yeah. And like I said, uh, some of that goes back before Caesar's time as a public figure. So th- there was, th- there's baggage that the senators and the Roman people are bringing into this historical circumstance. So I don't, I would not say that the historical record is more cut and dry. Um, I think the historical record's a little bit more enlightening and makes it more interesting. Yeah. Um, and it does make me wonder if Shakespeare's audience would have been more aware of the history behind it. Um, part of that might just be that I'm a bit cynical about our culture's historical knowledge anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, I assume they knew more, but, but maybe not. And maybe Shakespeare is bringing in a little bit more one side of that into the, into the play, I, but I don't know. I think you're right, Brian. I think that the Elizabethan audience of Shakespeare's day would have been very familiar. However, Shakespeare true to form is a bit subversive here because Julius Caesar was universally acknowledged in uh, the the late medieval times as a great historical hero. Mm-hmm. He was beloved of the people. And he he's mentioned several times in Shakespeare's work, notably in Richard III, which came out a few years before uh, Julius Caesar, which was first, which incidentally and interestingly was probably the first play ever performed at the Globe Theater. It was Julius Caesar. Uh, During the time when Elizabeth's reign was declining and she had no successor, which is a very big deal in uh, actually what in scene two here of act one. Um, So the idea of the, of succession being the general anxiety, creating general anxiety among the people of this beloved ruler Uh, Queen Elizabeth, who has saved them from the Spanish Armada, and she was unexpectedly great. No one thought she was going to do anything. She was right on the heels of the uh, Reformation, and she was a Protestant queen. I mean, this is so much turmoil in this day and age. And Caesar was seen by these people. Every era has its own historical consciousness, right? And so Caesar was seen as a someone who brought peace to a troubled empire, And so Shakespeare, again, true to form, comes in and uh, Caesar is not, I mean, that this is, I mean, maybe debatable, but he's not very attractive in this play. And he dies in act two. Really, it's the tragedy of Brutus, this play is. And so, and he is portrayed as ambitious, ambitious, grasping to be, uh, to be made emperor. So now we look back on it with a lot of question marks, right? Maybe they needed to become an empire. Maybe the Roman Republic had run its course. Um, 
But Caesar is definitely a, the bridge generation between the Roman Empire, or excuse me, the Republic and what became the Empire. And there's a lot of ambiguity on how each era interprets that transition. And Shakespeare just goes right to the heart of it in his typical fashion. I don't even know, as I've said in many podcasts, I don't know how Shakespeare happened. He's just unbelievable. And in his ability to uh, kind of plug into the psyche of an entire public and private individuals and raise these anxieties without casting judgment on our conclusions of them. I take umbrage with that. You do? How so? Well, I take umbrage with several things that you've said so far. The first is that you called me a classicist. And <laughs> being one of those, I would like you to know that I would pronounce it classicist. That's fair. Heartsies. My apologies. Thank you. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. Okay. I know. This is so great. But the, the public should know. Please, our listeners know. should know that, that Matt and I, <laughs> you may say he doesn't like banter, but. This I is. never said. <laughs> <laughs> no, he he just doesn't like other people's banter. I don't well, like small talk. He likes my banter. We have this is this just is not be small and talk. Arguing and and Brian egging us on and saying wise things in between our arguments. So the other more important thing <laughs> that I take umbrage with, which I take umbrage, <laughs> good is, grammar. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh-huh. I am a classicist. Uh-huh. Um, is that Julius Caesar doesn't come off very well in this play? I yeah. think that um, I, I think that it, that Julius Caesar's character has that same level of ambiguity that Brian was talking about earlier with the history and, and the behavior. And I think there's there's a way to read it and see Brutus as the honorable person who did the honorable thing, and there's a way to see it as Brutus got played. Oh. Mm-hmm. And Julius Caesar did not deserve to die at all and was a good ruler and would have may- continued to be a good ruler. Uh, I-, I think all of those things will be like, I guess I'm saying all that to mm-hmm. to point out my umbrage, but also to um, maybe set the stage because I think you know, those things will come out as we go. I mean, I don't want to spoil the play <laughs> in act one, but I mean, actually we're still in scene one for that matter uh, for everybody when there's so much to come. Right. Right. Well, and just to quickly quick clarify, when I say that Julius Caesar doesn't come off super well in this play, I mean, Julius Caesar as, and, and you can still, I hope you convince me of this. Honestly, I'd be happy to eat my words on this because the ambiguity of how Shakespeare draws his characters is one of my favorite things about Shakespeare. So yeah. I'm hoping to change my mind. Um, when I say that though, I mean, Julius Caesar as a man, not Julius Caesar as a ruler or a public figure, because everything you said about the, uh, how you can interpret um, that what takes place on the public level is a hundred percent. I completely back you up on that. I totally agree. So to move on to scene two, then since we're still in scene one, it does open. Oh, go ahead, Brian. I was going to say scene two, it brings up the issue that you mentioned about succession. And let's see around line six. Caesar and Antony, Calphurnia is there, Caesar's wife. They're attending the race. And as Antony is about to leave to begin his race, Caesar says, uh, forget not in your speed, Antonius, to touch Calphurnia. 
for our elders say the barren touched in this holy chase shake off their sterile curse. Mm-hmm. So that was the the belief that if one of the um one of the runners, um, one of those participating in the chase, touched a barren woman in the course of the race, then her sterility, her infertility would be reversed or removed. Um, so you have that issue here. Caesar without an heir, his wife is barren. And so he, he broaches the issue in conversation with Antony. And so you, you have that issue of the successor brought up Mm -hmm. and it's, it's particularly, it's interesting to me because here's yet again, a specific detail where if, if you see Caesar as a hero, then you see a man who wants a child. Yes. Right. You see a father, uh, a husband who wants a child. If you see Caesar as a tyrant, you see, look, he's trying to get a successor, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> which was frowned upon in Rome. Right. I mean, you had to rise to the position of consul. It was not, uh, it was not a hereditary title. And so the assumption that Caesar wants to become king, that Caesar wants to rule Rome himself is confirmed in the minds of those who already think that mm. when he starts mentioning wanting a child. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that is really good. The other important thing to point out about just this little incident at the beginning of scene two, one is the issue of succession, which you said so well. And then immediately after that, we have, you know, the most famous line in the play from the soothsayer, beware the Ides of March. Um, and, and Caesar completely dismisses him, mm-hmm. whatever man, right? But we do see he's superstitious about his wife. Mm-hmm. potentially um, getting magically pregnant, right? So this, and I think this is really, really important to this play because so much of this play deals with um, the supernatural versus the utilitarian. Uh, we have Cassius, who's so utilitarian. He's in this scene, so I'm not jumping ahead or giving any spoilers. Like he's, and Casca, all the conspirators are just, I mean, vehemently, we have to do what works for Rome. Mm-hmm. And then you have the wives who are always having dreams and, and these portents and these presages and these uh, intuitions and, and kind of how those two things clash creates a lot of the conflict in this play. And we see it right away here with Caesar. When he wants to be superstitious, he is. When he wants to be utilitarian, he is. So it shows the conflict between those two things, those two themes and motifs right here at the beginning of the play. Right. I, I think omens are one of the one of the themes that you that you come back to time and time again. You have to you have to really pay attention to these. It's it is interesting to sort of extend what you're saying that Caesar seems to observe at least one small superstition about his wife. I was, I was trying not to laugh into the microphone when you said about his wife getting magically pregnant. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting way to put that. Um, 
But well, I mean, he was uh, going to be involved, but it was going to be the magic. So. <laughs> Would you like to explain that to any of the students <laughs> no, listening? No, okay, that's good. one of the appealing things about Julius Caesar is that there's right. none of that. <laughs> right. Um, so I think... <laughs> Took me a second, but I oh got boy. that. <laughs> um, <laughs> none of that stuff. But, but notice, um, this jumps out to me, is that Caesar will accept superstition when when its interpretation is coming from him. Right. Hmm. When he encounters it among someone else or, or among other people, encounters it in someone else, he doesn't trust it. Yeah. And that's, that's that is yet again, another one of those confusing details where you could take it one way or the other, right? Yeah. See, mm-hmm. he won't listen to anyone else. He's only concerned about his own, authority, his own opinions, his own ideas. You can't trust a man like that. Um, or he has a good head on his shoulders. Right. You could see right? his evidence <laughs> yeah. of his courage and yeah, he's his, not easily yes. given over to fear or yeah. You know. It seems right. to be it seems to be that it's connected somehow with the office though. Huh. When it's a superstition directed toward the office of Caesar, then he accepts it if it's positive because he believes so much in the office. Hmm. I mean, I mean, reading it from the positive perspective, right? In a positive perspective mm-hmm. of Julius Caesar. So superstition applied to Calpurnia is appropriate because she's a mere mortal. She's just a woman, and she she had she has this this um, issue uh, <coughs> or or lack thereof, and he. It, it's which is interesting too because it never occurs at least in the play it never occurs to him that he might be the one that is um sterile not her but mm-hmm. um but it, but the superstition applies to her and then uh and then superstitions so superstitions applied to other people are fine if they're if they're superstitions that get applied to the caesar if they're negative toward the caesar then they can't be true because it's the Caesar, right? Right. And right. if it's positive, then it's, then he, so, so, you know, later on, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but in act three or in act two, there's going to be this moment where there's a competing interpretations mm-hmm. of, yes. of, a, of a superstition towards Caesar. And he's going to choose the one that's positive because only positive things can happen to the Caesar, I think. But that's part of the problem. I'm sorry. Did I cut you off? No, no. Go ahead. Um, that's part of the problem with omens. Mm-hmm. Right? That's one of the things that you you learn throughout history and throughout this play in particular. Any omen can be interpreted either way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's why they're not really particularly useful. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, and to add to that, Brian, almost the, a lot of the imagery in this play, if you and if if I was teaching this play, I would be on this like white on rice, like I'd with my students. It's pay attention when you see anything that has to do with night and day. Because in this play, the imagery of day, daybreak, is so, uh, I, I mean, it's pervasive throughout the whole play, all the way into Act 5. And, but it is almost always connected to some kind of violence. Like it's used as a prediction or an omen, as you point out, of of coming glory, right? A new day for Rome. Once the tyrant has been killed, then we can have the break of day for a new golden age of Rome. Um, and, and then that's not what happens. However, on the other side, at night, you have 
and and actually you will see this in a little bit here with the storm in scene three. You see kind of this sense of mystery and 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 darkness, and yet that's where wisdom comes. When in the darkness, that's when the wives have their dreams. That's when Brutus is actually questioning himself and saying, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. He has insomnia in the play, right? And in the play, and in the insomnia, he questions and he goes towards, he's going back and forth um, towards wisdom. So there's this kind of this mystical wisdom, which is in some ways very, like a very Christian idea. That's what the mystics who would have, who Shakespeare potentially could have read, we don't know. Um, but that's a lot of the message of Christian mysticism is that in the mystery comes enlightenment, not in what men might call the enlightened day. So it's hmm. that subvertive image um, throughout the play of daybreak versus night, and it's used in an unexpected way. I like that. I, you know, what, one of the things that, that always hits me about Shakespeare is how the um the supernatural always employs the natural right so hmm. when there are when there are really big things going on the uh, the natural world reflects that i mean you see it in scene 3 here act 1 scene 3 with the storms and the meteor mm-hmm. shower and the lion um the right, lion the is omens. This, yeah. all those omens right and uh, but you see it in, in, I mean, this happens a lot in Shakespeare's plays, right? Uh, I think Tim and I talked about this and David in, um, in the King Lear episodes mm-hmm. that the, you know, the storms there are, are indicating, um, you know, some sort of spiritual turmoil Then, of course, then, you know, as Christians, we think about the star in, um, you know, pointing the, the Magi toward the birthplace of Christ. Um, you know, we like, like those kinds of connections are very are very real for Shakespeare, uh, less so for us today, even though they perhaps ought not to be. Um, and I think it's also perhaps what people love about Flannery O'Connor, right? That the physical world is so sacramental in, mm-hmm. um, in her writing. The, the, what's, what's especially fascinating for me to me about scene three is, is, is not just the, the, in, the, the use and the introduction of that, the natural world communicating spiritual things, supernatural things, but the reactions to it. Mm-hmm. So you get, you get Casca scared out of his wits. And then Cicero's like, this is great. I love it. Have you, have you seen a more wonderful or beautiful sight? Right. And, and then Cicero leaves. Casca's still freaking out about it. And then Cassius comes on the screen, screen, or stage, and uh, and says, and and, and also welcomes the signs, mm-hmm. and and then Cassius has this kind of uh, what Brian, what you were talking about with the the way of interpreting omens, where he says, I I pulled, I bared my chest at the storm, mm-hmm. and and basically called on the gods to strike him, and Casca says, what? Why, why would you do that? Why would you make yourself vulnerable like that? But then Cassius, of course, is going to interpret that as, and they didn't strike me down, so I'm on the right path. Right. The thing that I'm plotting and planning is therefore appropriate, right? So right. now he's, yeah. he's interpreting signs and omens the way he wants to as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Which Cicero addresses in that scene. I don't have line numbers, so I can't, but it's about, I bet what? it's about, a, I know. I just have one of those little, like the little ones, you know, that just little Macmillan. I think books. we call those defective. 
right? I really need to get my giant. Did it have a cover on it when you bought it? (laughs) It's a beautiful cover. That's why I bought it. I buy pretty books. And then later I learned I should (laughs) pay attention to whether or not it has line numbers. Um, But it's after in, in scene three, it's in the convert, the first part of it, and when Casca is talking to Cicero, and Cicero basically says exactly what you just said, Brian, um, which is indeed it is a strange, disposed time, but men may construe things after their fashion, mm-hmm. clean from the purpose of the things themselves. So here is Cicero saying. Those may have been portents, they may have been omens, but we don't have any idea what they meant, or they could have just meant nothing, but we're going to hear what we want to hear. Cicero copies me all the time. Right. Yes. (laughs) Kind of like a, yeah, time backwards kind of thing. Time bleeding backwards. (laughs) um, Heidi believes in time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's particularly interesting since, um, as you know, Cicero mentions this, sort of in the middle of where all the omens come. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Shakespeare uses that comment to remind the audience mm-hmm. that there are two ways to look at these things, mm-hmm. right? Um, both the omens that have already happened and the ones that are to come. Right. right. You know, we, uh, I think we missed some important things in scene two, though, didn't we? There didn't might we? have been a couple important things there. Whatever. <laughs> oh, the whole, the whole uh, humanizing of Caesar. That's <laughs> And please well, uh, convince us of that. But yeah, well, go ahead, that Brian. and that and this is where Cassius begins to convince Brutus. Yes, that Caesar's to be feared, right? Mm-hmm. So here's where I <laughs> put just in my bias and my interpretation. So I think Brutus makes the wrong decision. I think he destroys himself and his own soul and potentially Rome. Just in scene two? No, well, no. But in order for me to say what I think about scene two, I have to say that. <laughs> so it, here, I think that Cassius, and I want you guys to argue with me. Please don't be gentle with me. This is my You're interpretation going down, of woman. Play, right? Yes. Yeah, so bring it, Matt. Um, I think that Cassius is the devil. I think he is the serpent, the seducer. And here, I think he plays upon a hidden pride in Brutus, uncovers it, and then uses it to destroy Brutus and Caesar and Rome. Himself. And him, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, <laughs> he does destroy himself through it, which Sorry, is fitting, fitting and appropriate. So in Act Two, we have his, we have the first example of a great rhetorical speech and it's actually from Cassius and the play has is full of rhetorical persuasive speeches in the classical style so when he and but the way that Cassius gets to Brutus is by calling him virtuous so when he sees him in the streets um have they heard from Casca at this point No. No, no they haven't okay but um Caesar is coming back into the city and he's having a triumph, even though he has not. And this, this is actually as you, um, a kind of a big deal. And as you pointed out, Brian, this is a little bit of specialized historical knowledge, which 
perhaps the Elizabethan audience would have known, but it's important in interpreting the play. As Caesar's coming to Rome, he's having a triumph because he is coming as a victor over Pompey. But technically, he hasn't defeated a foreign power and expanded the Roman Empire, so why is he having a triumph? And this is something they discuss in scene one. And so it's creating some anxiety within the Senate of he must be coming to claim the throne since he's having a triumph, which is usually reserved for victors who have expanded the empire over foreign powers. So this is, this is why there's some unrest among the people, which, and, or excuse me, not among the people, the people are fine among the Senate. Um, And and, the tribunes in scene one. Exactly. Yes. So they're worried that he's coming to create an empire. And maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But here, Brutus and Cassius have this conversation, and Cassius says to him, um, I know, again, I'm so sorry, I don't have my, I will next week, I promise. (laughs) Um, A little bit into the conversation, when I know that virtue to be in you, Brutus. Yes, that's line 90. For those following along at home. For those who have the right edition. I know that virtue to be in you, Brutus, as well as I do know your outward favor, while honor is the subject of my story. And then he goes on to kind of put in his mind this idea of conspiracy against Caesar. And he defends his point brilliantly. He uses Aeneas and Anchises and, and these appeals to Brutus's honor and the glory of Rome. Uh, and he tells him this, and that, I think, awakens within Brutus kind of a hitherto unknown, very deeply seated pride in his own virtue that leads him then to a great sin. That's my interpretation of this act. Other people see this very differently. Well, this this sort of supports your point that if we do take Cassius as the tempter or as the devil— as you mm-hmm. said, um, if you look at line 33, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think you even have to wait until line 90 to see that. This is when they're still outside of the games or the course where Antony's about to run. And Cassius is talking to Brutus. He says, Brutus, I do observe you now of late. I have not from your eyes that gentleness and show of love as I was wont to, to have you bear too stubborn and too strange a hand over your friend that loves you. Hmm. I think the temptation actually begins there where yeah. Cass- Cassius plants sort of a seed of doubt. Yeah. You know, isn't something wrong? <laughs> you know, you don't seem yourself, which I, d- I don't know that I would have thought of it until you said to you mentioned Cassius as the devil or as the tempter, but you could see that as, you know, right. Cassius trying to plant the seeds of doubt that you seem like something's bothering you. Um, and he connects it to Caesar. And it's actually from there that the conversation continues and that you're right. That's launches true. Fully into um, appeals to pride and vanity. Um, and that's where in the garden, in the garden of Eden, that's where the serpent started. Right. Yes. As, as God said, you know, did he really, say this right. and, you did know, god really say right he starts with doubt i read this um sorry am i cutting you off right no. no i read this book recently called uh, a gospel grotesque 
and it's a uh, it's written as kind of a response to Paradise Lost. And there's a scene in there where Lucifer is tempting the first angel hmm. to, to join his side, and he and he he approaches the angel and he says something like, "Has God ever thanked you?" Hmm. And then the the angel's like, "Huh? What? No, no, he hasn't." <laughs> <laughs> and then that, and it just you know that's his temptation right from there yeah. right like right um, so I, I, so I my interpretation of this scene is not I don't think it's any different than than either of yours I think of Cassius as a, a tempter mm-hmm. and I think of Brutus as getting played um, my concern is more on the Caesar side of it because mm-hmm. I think that Cassius in doing what he does actually reveals the um, reveals perhaps that ca- that that Caesar is not what he's the case he's building mm. except doesn't realize that he's doing that so the so the 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 whole build up for Brutus <clears throat> is that um and this comes out clearer i think in in the scene at his home in the middle of the night when he wakes up yeah. but, but mm-hmm. the whole the whole argument for Brutus is that Caesar is an ambitious person yeah who must be stopped Except right. Brutus himself admits, although we don't have a whole lot of evidence of that, mm-hmm. but you know, like a snake in an egg, egg you got to kill it before it's born. <laughs> right. Uh, exactly. But Cassius's argument here is something more like, like he's trying to say that Caesar is not worthy or what mm-hmm. he's actually communicating yeah. is that Caesar is not worthy of any attention. Um, or at least no more than Brutus. No more than Brutus. Right. So, so what he does yeah. is he, he actually ends up, really really humanizing caesar mm-hmm. hmm. and you know showing how caesar has has his own wants and fears has his own his own weaknesses mm-hmm. you know strengths and weaknesses has a normal sounding name you know whatever that means <laughs> um, and it's not it's 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 interesting that it's interesting that to me he actually makes me more sympathetic with caesar in an attempt uh, to try to make brutus less sympathetic with caesar Right. Well, well and it, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say too that if the if Brutus's issue with Caesar is his ambition, look at the way Cassius tempts Brutus though. Mm-hmm. Around line one forty two. Sorry, Heidi. Nope, uh, I got this. I haven't memorized, okay. so no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Cassius says, "What should be in that Caesar? Why should that name be?" excuse me, be sounded more than yours. Write them together. Yours is as fair a name. Sound them. It doth become the mouth as well. Weigh them. It is as as heavy. Conjure with them. Brutus will start a spirit as soon as Caesar. So I I don't think that he's, well, he is trying to humanize Caesar again, but he's also trying to elevate Brutus. Mm. Yes, he is. He's appealing to Brutus's ambition. Mm -hmm. Yes. While pointing out that the problem with Caesar is his ambition. Mm-hmm. So he raises, he raises Brutus while decreasing Caesar. Decreasing. Yeah. It's kind of brilliant. And yeah. to support that, I, 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 these are the lines I was looking for before you can, Brian or Matt, tell me what line I'm on. This is um, shortly after the first speech you guys brought out. Brutus, I do observe you now of late. It's a little bit down from that. It starts with tis jest and it is very much lamented. Okay, that's at um, 54. Okay. Tis just, and it is very much lamented, Brutus, that you, oh, I'm so interested in mirrors in Shakespeare. 
mirrors are always so important. And it is very much lamented, Brutus, that you have no such mirrors as will turn your hidden worthiness into your eye, that you might see your shadow. This, These lines are just so, so brilliant. What he's saying, what he's trying, what he's saying on the outside, like on the surface is, I wish that you had a mirror so that you could see your own, your virtues, Brutus. But then that line that you might see your shadow in Elizabethan times, in this context, they would have read that as reflection in the mirror, right? That, 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 that's an appropriate interpretation of it in Shakespearean English. Now, there's also a very, very much a double meaning in that, right? And in holding up your virtues, I'm awakening a pride in you, Brutus, that now you're going to see your shadow side, the dark side of you, right? That's what he's trying to awaken. Hmm. And that's what his actions are going to do. They're going to become a mirror that shows him that all along he was not as virtuous as he thought that he was. And that goes to both of your points and then and that great rhetorical speech and when Cassius gets him to buy into his treachery. Hmm. That that he is he is elevating, he's playing on this pride in his own virtue. It makes me think of have you guys read Paralandra? Yeah. Remember when Weston tempts the green lady and he is making her, he's working on that pride in her that she's so virtuous that she is, she's like this great heroic queen. And because of that, then she should sleep on the fixed lands because she has, she's, she has, she's so virtuous that Mm. she, she, her, she is not held to the moral law. So that temptation works on Brutus. You know, one of the things that I want to, that I want to point out, I guess, at this point with this particular scene is the temptation to, to think Cassius is right about the need for a mirror Mm. Um, that we can't see ourselves and we need somebody to reflect ourselves back to us. Yeah. It's just, in this case, Cassius himself is a bad mirror. Huh. And I, I wonder if the, the, the bigger point is that another person can't be a mirror, huh. um, ought not be a mirror. Like, like there's a, there's a great line in, um, in the Mino where Mino says something about, Socrates and Socrates says, no, 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 no. I know what you're doing. You're drawing an image of me. You're describing an image of me to provoke me to respond by, by, by describing an image of you. You want me to tell, you hmm. want me to say something nice about you. You want me to talk about you and I'm not going to fall for it. That's not, that's not what this is about. Um, and then they, you know, he wants to eat, continues the pursuit of, of answering the question, what is virtue? The, um, but, but also within Shakespeare, you find, you find another, another play that tells us what the mirror ought to be, what it Mm. is. That's the mirror that that holds a mirror up to nature and reveals our nature to us, reveals to us who we are. And in Hamlet, that's the play, right? Right. It's the play, the story, these, these things, these, the, the overall play, the overall story is what holds is is what is the mirror that reveals who we are to us, right? And and in many ways, I think even the way we interpret it is hmm. is revealing something more. Like perhaps that's why Shakespeare writes his stories in a way that they're 
there's that kind of ambiguity. They're not preachy, right? So we can we can learn something about ourselves by by which direction we interpret it. Hmm. Right. I think that's great. So so to your point, or at the very beginning, Brian, if if my assumption in every line is that Caesar is a tyrant, mm-hmm. that reveals something about me. Right. If my assumption yeah. in every line is that Caesar is just a just a, a man, a husband who wants to be a dad, you know, and, and just a human being, then that reveals something about me as yeah, much right. as it does about Caesar. You're either going to be an assassin or a campaign manager. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. I think yeah, that that's you're a right. Good point. It does. It does. The the questions that Shakespeare raises for us are meant to be wrestled with, and he's and he's not going to answer them simply. Um, uh, there's another example of this at the end of scene two. Okay. Um, Heidi, could you stop turning your pages so loudly? Gosh. <laughs> well, if they can tolerate my coughing, then maybe a few page turns aren't too bad. Around line Thanks, one. Thanks, Brian. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to start mouth breathing into the microphone. <laughs> Around line 192. Uh, Anthony's done with the games. And um, Caesar and Anthony are, are talking now afterwards. And Caesar calls Anthony over. Uh, and he says, let me have men about me that are fat. He's Amen. <laughs> Amen, brother. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, he's, he's speaking here of um, Cassius. Let me have men about me that are fat, sleek-headed men. Hey, I got that one too. Yeah. <laughs> two, for two. two for two, Matt. And and such as sleep at nights. Do you sleep at night? I do sleep at night. Wow. I do. Yeah. Caesar would love you. Yeah. Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. Uh-oh. That's so good. I do the think too much thing though. Oh. Three for yeah. five. Three for okay. five. Um, and when you no. only eat meat, you're usually hungry, right? Are you hungry? Right? <laughs> well, in fairness, it is lunchtime here. Yeah, there. So, um, so how would you interpret this then? You hear these words from Caesar. If you're convinced that Caesar's a tyrant, then you go, see, he just wants lazy yes men. Right. He just yeah. wants, he doesn't want people around him who are going to think, who are going to question him, who are, um, who aren't just going to fully endorse whatever he wants them to go along with. And then Antony responds, fear him not Caesar. He's not dangerous. He's a noble Roman and well-given. And Caesar says, would he were fatter, <laughs> but I fear him not. Um, so then you have the other side of this that, um, you know, if, if Caesar is noble and a Roman hero, uh, then, you know, you don't really question that because you're automatically assuming that Cassius isn't trustworthy, right? You're assuming that Cassius is the devil, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the tempter, and that, um, you know, he just doesn't want to be loyal to any authority over him. So again, Hmm. nearly every word from Caesar, every action from Caesar in this play can be interpreted just like all the omens, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Caesar himself is is like an omen in this hmm. play. Um, is that he? And yeah, like that. A, I'm right that one. There's down. a lot to pursue there. Um, everything he does, everything he says, can be interpreted both ways, and that's why. I mean, the question in this play that every teacher, every homeschool parent has to focus on is should the conspirators kill Caesar? 
Right. right? That is the question of the play. And you have to pay attention to how all of Caesar's actions and words can be interpreted through both answers, if you will, or pursued, you know, on both sides. Well, and especially in this early part of the play, the question is, should exactly, should they kill Caesar? And if they should, should Brutus participate in it? Right. And all of that goes to whether or how you interpret Caesar, as you point out, I think that that's exactly true. Um, but I, I do want to say, I think there's a little bit of a false dichotomy in the early part of this play that is created by Cassius. And that is the idea that if Caesar is ambitious, that must necessarily mean that that's bad for Rome. So right. he connects those two. Caesar is ambitious. He wants to be the emperor. And therefore, Rome is doomed. And for the glory and the good of Rome, he has to be removed. But what he really means is, therefore, I'm doomed. Yes. Right. Me. Right. right. I right. don't like it. Right. So I'm not, I am, I don't buy that. I don't buy that, that one follows the other. So the idea of whether or not Caesar is ambitious is that could very well be true, and that could also be for the glory and the good of Rome. Doesn't, so I think that there's a false premise there. This really boils down to the definition of ambition, though, right? Is ambition a ne- necessarily no. negative thing? Or see, we're going <laughs> to have to come back. Best. Yeah. yeah, we're going to have to come back to those two questions. Yes, we're going to have to come back yeah. to the nature of ambition, mm-hmm. but then we're going to have to come back to whether. Caesar's ambition to be king, or it, actually, the title emperor would not been would not have been nearly as troubling to Romans right. as king. Um, whether that ambition would lead to the downfall of Rome, because I think that that's another issue. That's a historical context thing that we're often missing here, but I don't want to bring it up yet because it becomes. Per- particularly apparent later. This is a back pocket argument. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm saving that one. Just so you know, guys, keep listening because I have some good stuff later. <laughs> Not so much this episode. But. <laughs> okay, also, we can't forget that Casca... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why do we believe him? I mean, Just at this point, in Act 1, Casca says... Well, I he would have he would fain have had it. Casca. They offered him the crown. He yeah. turned it. He turned it down. But he would fain have had it. I think it's because he's funny. How the heck does Casca know? Casca's hilarious, <laughs> and therefore we trust him. Yeah, because he kind of disarms us with humor. I think because he's it's, it's really sleek headed. Actually, there's a scene where where right at the end of that scene, Casca uh, Casca leaves, mm-hmm. and Brutus says. What a blunt fellow is this grown to be? He was quick metal when he went to school. And Cassius describes, responds and says, so is he now in execution of any bold or noble enterprise? However, he puts on this tardy form. This rudeness is a sauce to his good wit, which gives men's stomach to digest his words with better appetite. Um, that there's, there's something going on in Casca, but he hides it and he disguises it. Yeah. Uh, by by his behavior, by his you know geniality, by his words, um, and I think I think one of the problem or one of the things that could get us into trouble is that 
if we read Casca's words here and assume that he's trustworthy, yeah, um, like we're we're already aware that Cassius might not be trustworthy. We ought also to consider that his buddy Casca might not be trustworthy either, and is part of this is part of this conspiracy to get Brutus on board. Hmm. That, that Cassius is not a serpent acting alone. He has a buddy with it. Or he has somebody helping him, perhaps. And that person might be Casca, who is who is imposing, imputing motives to Caesar that might not yeah. have been there. He does. I mean, when he reports on the people trying to give the crown to Caesar three times, mm-hmm. he, you know, he says things like, basically, it seemed to me that he really wanted it. But every time they offered it to him, it was harder and harder for Caesar to refuse it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and his disdain for the common people, right, is is very obvious. I mean, it's <laughs> it's humorously worded to us anyway. <laughs> but um, if the tag rag people did not clap him and hiss him <coughs> as he pleased yeah. and displeased them, <clears throat> the rabble hooted and clapped their chopped hands, threw yeah. up their sweaty nightcaps, and uttered such a deal of stinking breath because Caesar refused the crown that huh. it had almost choked Caesar. For he swooned and fell down at it. Um, hmm. there, so Caesar swooned while rejecting the crown because the people's breath was so bad Yeah, as they shouted for him. I never thought about distrusting Casca here because isn't that in Plutarch, which was Shakespeare's primary source? Is it in Plutarch that Caesar refuses the crown three times? Which, by the way, pay attention to threes. Anytime something happens mm-hmm. three times, that's always important. Whatever, right. three, yeah. something, some sort of magical number. <laughs> Could give Calpurnia a magic baby. Magic babies, <laughs> magic, magic threes. Babies. Yep, <laughs> yep. <coughs> I so I don't I don't disagree that that's an interesting interpretation, and I think you could play that pretty well on stage. Actually, that would be a really interesting um, performance to have Casca and Cassius be co-conspirators and have this be a made-up story. But I've never considered that in reading the play. Hmm. I always just took it at face value. And it, the whole idea of it might fall apart if if there is his, the historical context of Plutarch's lives that, you know, ex, that that any normal audience in Shakespeare's day would have known. And so Shakespeare can assume that you know the motive. Um but if you're if you're if you're examining the text on its own Mm-hmm. Apart from that knowledge, then it's it's interesting to me that 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 does become a possibility, right? That Casca might not be a trustworthy narrator, not narrator, but a trustworthy speaker here, um, and that and and yet the tendency that I have to just automatically want to trust him and then have to ask myself why am I trusting him? Yeah. Hmm. Well, his his role in it, his temptation, if you want to call it that, is not as overt. It's far more subtle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some valuable lessons there. Even if it doesn't hold with interpretation of the whole play, there's certainly some valuable lessons there, right? That just because right. just because he's not as direct as Cassius doesn't mean he's not as dangerous. You feel Cassius's sleaziness, but <laughs> Cassius right. is, right. is hidden with the humor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, is there is there is there anything else we need to say about Act One? I don't know. I I feel like we hit the high points. Oh, I did want to hear just really quickly, what are we to make of Mark Antony at this point, since he becomes such a big part of the rest of it? What are your, what are, what do you make of him here in scene in act one? Hmm. 
I think it's an interesting contrast to note uh, Anthony running in a race in contrast to the, um, you know, Anthony's out in the public eye participating in the Roman games, um, has the ear of Caesar, and then in almost this back room conversation, you have Cassius and Brutus and Casca. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. Um, so you have Mark Antony almost comes across as like the active ideal Roman man, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and then you've got Cassius um, who seems pretty slimy at this point. Right. Which, which itself will get subverted with Mark Antony, I think, but we can come back to that when we get to Oh, yeah. Yeah, act absolutely. Four. I think Act 4 is it. The danger of first impressions. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, in the same scene uh, as the young Cassius, yond Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. <laughs> and he's talking to Antony. And then he expands on that. Uh, Caesar does in his in the next lines. Um he says, so soon as that spare Cassius, he reads much. He is a great observer and he looks quite through the deeds of men. He loves no plays as thou dost, Antony. He hears no music. Seldom he's, oh, so, excuse me. So we get here that Antony, just a little glimpse into him as a pleasure loving man. And so you have to wonder even now, right? Why, if he's, if Caesar is saying, I want fat men which you can interpret as what sycophants, yes, and here he is with Antony. Is that all Antony is? And it seems to be that's how he's perceived. Except they several times mentioned that Antony actually does really love Caesar. Mm-hmm. That they are truly, deeply, they have a real affection for each other. But that Antony is a, you know, perhaps he is also a sycophant. Again, that gets explored in the rest of the play. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem like anyone thinks much of him right now. Yeah. He's he's certainly not. You certainly don't get much of a glimpse of what he will become later. Right. At least not yet. Right. So is that intentional? Is that an image he's cultivating? Or and this is something I'm curious about. I'm I I've always wondered this about Antony. Is he face value is this really who he is now or is he cultivating an image which now that i think about is the same question about prince hal which is a play written very very closely before this play so that that idea of the 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 one no one really takes seriously or thinks of as a leader emerges with this great strength of character was it that mark antony was just acting like this in order to get close to power and then he was going to kind of burst onto the scene or does that happen because he meets the adversity of losing his leader so he sees an opportunity and seizes it and then becomes the mark antony we know in the rest of his play and in antony and cleopatra wait he loses his leader Caesar. Caesar dies. Wait. Whoops! <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. So, first, <laughs> yeah. my apologies. Spoil, spoil, spoil. Thanks for joining us Jeff? for this one and only episode. <laughs> You're fired. <clears throat> you are the weakest thing. Goodbye. <laughs> it is. It is interesting though to see how Cassius and Casca and later Brutus are convinced that Caesar is the threat. Mm-hmm. Only for it to be revealed that 
both historically and in the play, Mark Antony was the one to really be afraid of. That's right. Well, in um, fairness, Cassius was on board with that because Cassius does want to kill Mark that, Antony. Well, that's true. And then Brutus is like, nah. That's true. That's you cut right. off well, the head, what can the arm do? That's but, next week. And that is such oops. an important scene. Yeah, spoiler. Now you're the weakest link. Yeah. <laughs> We're but, all dropping like flies. <laughs> but now notice too, though, that... Um, that the characters in a Shakespeare tragedy. <laughs> exactly. That Caesar looks to Cassius and says, I, I don't like him. Mm-hmm. I see him as a threat. And Antony says, oh, no, no, no. You don't need to fear him. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Right. So yeah. everyone gets what? it right. Yeah. Or everyone gets it wrong. Or Mark Antony was Macbething him. <laughs> yeah, don't fear him so he can take you out for me. All See, right, this well, is the question I have about Mark Antony. I'm very curious about him during the early part of his career. Oh, man. There's a, whole, a new conspiracy theory just popped into my head. Yeah, that's nonsense. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that we have reached the end of valuable comments. For today. <laughs> <laughs> now we have derailed. We're going to start internet no, rumors no offense, Matt. Like, and then the aliens came okay one yeah. one last comment from me okay there's one thing i just want to point out one last thing and it, go, it just touches back on what what you know brian what you've been saying about the different ways to interpret but in that speech that you just read to us heidi about he reads too much and he loves no plays he hears no music he loves no plays see he doesn't have a mirror he doesn't That's have the right. proper mirror right i just think shakespeare put that in there just for fun probably <laughs> Um, probably he couldn't possibly have meant anything by it. <laughs> <laughs> but then at the end of it, he says, I rather tell thee what is to be feared than what I fear for always. I am Caesar. So there's huh. the description of his office and the godlike nature of it. That's then good. the very next line says, come on my right hand for this year is death. Truly what you'd think, what thou thinkst of him. And now there's the humanity of it. Right. And, but I am still a human being. Right. You know, right. and and I think too, Brian. Like, if I think of Caesar as a tyrant, then I read those two lines parallel to each other, and I think, see, the idiot doesn't even deserve to have the ambition that he has. Huh. But if yeah. I think of, yeah. but if I think of him as a human being, I think here's a man who is wrestling, like like what we say about um, Elizabeth in the Crown. Right. Here's oh. a person wrestling with. His personhood, his humanity, yeah. and his role as the Caesar, the office. Right. Okay. So I think you may have convinced me, even with just that, that because now I'm seeing Caesar as a man who just wants to have a friend. Yeah. Hmm. I think so. I mean, I think that, uh, well, never mind. I, yeah. I don't, I don't want to go too yeah. far down that road because we do see more of it in act two. Yeah. And that that contrasts constantly between his role as Caesar and the perception of whether he's grasping at power mm-hmm. and then um, his humanity. Mm-hmm. They're just, it's there all the time. Yeah. You know, every single scene, as I said, every action, every word, it's all there, um, including the way he deals, he responds to his wife. Yeah. When she has her nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you both. Right. This tension between wanting to be a good husband and wanting to be good Caesar, a good ruler. Well, and right. actually being somewhat easily influenced. I think that that maybe he's just, maybe he's a man who has this ability to lead and command, but 
is in relationship, he doesn't seem very discerning of the people around him. They deceive him very easily. Intimacy is hard for him, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'm maybe I'm convinced to see him a little bit more humanized. Don't give in so soon. You got to fight me for the next four acts. Ah, well, I'm sure we'll find something else. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> very true. <laughs> okay, so that's act one. Um, the uh, we we hit all the high points. Ever, closing words. Any anything else? Anybody needs to say? We're good there. No, this has been so fun. I really like this dynamic with the history, the classics, and the literary. I think it's good. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. Looking cool. forward to it. History nerd, right. book nerd, philosophy mm-hmm. nerd. Whatever. That's right. It's perfect. Classicist. Am I saying it right? <laughs> that was perfect. Just always say it that way from now on. Nailed it. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us for The Plays of the Thing. Julius, William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, Act One. Uh, we leave this episode promising that next week's episode will include a Heidi White who has a copy of the play with line numbers. With line numbers. And my word. You have my word. <laughs> and hopefully a Brian Phillips minus cough. Yes. Right? Let's that hope so. Really oh my goodness. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate it. Thanks you everybody for joining us. I feel bad. <laughs>